there. Well, welcome. Um, I've been looking forward to this Sunday now for a month or so, and um, I was so glad Roger took last Sunday and spoke about Martin Luther. I mean, I didn't have to, <laughs> because today is the, the closest Sunday to Reformation Day, so we call it Reformation Sunday that Jason's already mentioned, and I've just, if you pricked me right now, I would pop <laughs> with stories about the marvelous things God has done. You know, through the ages and what he's done to accomplish his will and his purposes. Um, but don't prick me. Don't, let's not try it. Let's not put it to the test. Um, had a hard time coming up with a title for this message. So I've decided to call it The Most Wicked Heresy or The Most Blessed Freedom. The Most Wicked Heresy or The Most Blessed Freedom. The bondage of the will. <laughs> <laughs> Amanda wanted me to spill the beans yesterday. She came to visit for a minute, and uh, I told her she had to come back today, but none, she's, she's got disappeared. Um, okay, so let's go. Have you ever had an experience where a change that you thought brought great joy, others considered a great tragedy? <laughs> <laughs> okay and vice versa right this happens both directions right great tragedy to this person great joy to this other person we see this a lot right uh, we've seen many positive changes in the world and yet we've seen drastic changes that seem tragic you know technology's changing attitudes are changing morals seem to change all of them affect our world and society but if you were to consider the way things were 500 years ago, you would realize what a miracle it is that we are assembled here together. We're freely worshiping Jesus. And Jason's already pointed out some of the songs that we sing with. These, these are songs of the heart, right? These are songs expressing a gratitude and a thankfulness and a love for God. Um, we are reading... The words of the Bible in English. We are reading the words. We own a Bible. We have our very own copy of God's word in the language that we speak. And maybe it's Russian or French or, other, or Spanish or other languages that are represented here. But we have the Bible in our very own language. This was not the case 500 years ago. We are hearing a sermon. We are going to hear a sermon. You're going to hear a teaching from the scriptures. This was not done. Um, back then, what we were doing today would be punishable by imprisonment and beatings. People were beheaded or drowned or burned at the stake for what we are doing right now. I want you to grasp the, the significance of that. On one hand, the tragedy of that. On the other hand, the great joy that, that comes from it. And those actions were not done by the state, but they were done by the church. It's clear that what we call the Reformation changed not only the course of church history, but the course of world history. Hunger for God's word broke the shackles off the gospel, finally freeing the gospel and off of a weakened church. So in spite of poverty, ridicule, persecution, imprisonment, beatings, and deaths, of some of the reformers, they 
and all these things they suffered, they served God with great joy. Now, sadly, they could not always find complete agreement on all the topics that they, that they discussed. And they did leave some behind, some division along the way that others tried to put together and fix. This was not, the Reformation was not a carefully crafted coup designed and executed by just a few people. It was scores of reformers working publicly and secretly in many countries over multiple centuries, sustained by grace from then even until today. The Reformation is still happening today. Before the Reformation, the church was a church without the Bible. The word was not read, it was not preached, it wasn't heard. There were few Bibles available. The few that were available were hand-copied in Latin, which most people could not understand. This was before the printing press, which was a a great triumph that God gave the world. Uh, A church without the Bible is as useless as a lighthouse without a light or an automobile without an engine. It's useless without the Bible. Sadly, even the priests scarcely knew anything about God's word or the true way of salvation. Think about it. When the 16th century began, for over a thousand years, few people in Europe had ever seen a Bible, much less actually read a Bible. For a thousand years, no one had seen or read a Bible except the nobility. They had generations had never heard Paul's words to Timothy. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. They had never heard that. Instead, instead of being instructed by pastors who preach God's word, they were taught that God is a God who enables people who must earn their own salvation. As one of their teachers at the time put it, God will not deny grace to those who do their best. Well, what was meant to be an encouragement really left a bitter taste in your mouth if you think about it. Because how do you know if you've ever done your best? And so that you would receive grace. How do you know that if you've ever arrived to merit salvation? It's really no wonder that these period, this age of time was called the Dark Ages. As the church rose to become the most powerful institution of any institution on the earth. And yet lost the light of the gospel. This is, our, this is the people who we look to as our forerunners. And many of them suffered in darkness because they had no light of the gospel. J.C. Ryle, the Anglican bishop, describes the situation in England. He says, The immense majority of the clergy did little more than say mass and offer up pretended sacrifices, repeat Latin prayers and chant Latin hymns, hear confessions, grant absolutions, give extreme unction, which means pray for the sick, and take money to get dead people out of purgatory. So how did all this come to pass? Well, again, in, the, in England in the 1500s, Bishop Hugh Latimer wrote that the Roman clergy were asked but not required to give sermons once every three months. So every, every 13 weeks, you'd be expected to hear one sermon. But Mass was never left unsaid for a single Sunday. And sermons really might be admitted for even up to half a year. Here's the issue. To preach was to incur the suspicion 
of being a heretic. Hmm. You know, if you if you preached what you thought was the word of God, you might be judged as a heretic. Well, what happens to heretics? <coughs> so why preach? Why take a stand on anything the Bible says? Because you might lose your head. <laughs> why preach at all? Bishop John Hooper, who along with Latimer and Ridley were burned alive at the stake under Queen Mary, surveyed 311 clergy in his district in, in England in 1551. He found that 168 of them, or well over half, could not repeat the Ten Commandments. 31 of those could not even say which part of the Scripture, Old Testament or New Testament, you would find the Ten Commandments. 40 could not tell where the Lord's Prayer were written, and 31 of the 40 did not know the author of the Lord's Prayer. So the, even, the, even the people, the priests supposed to be serving the people didn't know God's word. It was dark. <coughs> it was very dark. The works of the Reformation are, are many, but ultimately it was not the Reformers who did it. The word of God and the spirit of God were the true heroes, and they still are the true heroes. Luther said as much when he said, I did nothing. The work, the word did everything. We must remember this today. The word does the work. You know, do not slight the word of God in your life. It is what does the work. A concise summary of the truths recovered from the word of God is best found in the five solas. And we've just sung it. But I made this up, this little thing. This is how I remember it. First, I begin with Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel... For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So point number one, the righteous shall live by faith, not by faith and works, but faith alone. Question, but from where does this faith come? Can we earn our faith some way? Point two, no, this faith is received as a gift given by grace alone, not by merit. Question, but who would show such grace to us? Answer, it is by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ alone we receive the gift of faith. Question, and how do we know these things that they are true? Answer, by the promises of God's word alone, not by the pronouncement of any priest question why would god create and bring me to salvation as great as this answer for his glory and his glory alone these five solas um, really capture the heartbeat of the gospel you know we should we should rejoice in this and that's where we're headed this is a truth i want us to all take home from us today the miraculous working together of faith and grace, Jesus' accomplishments, his perfections, his resurrection, the scripture, all for the glory of God. God used the Reformation not only to change the church, but also the world. For instance, it's impossible to understand modern history apart from the Reformation. The history and formation of Europe, England, America, and every nation that those nations reached out to are only comprehended in the light of the Reformation. America would not be established as a land of religious freedom had the pilgrims not first been a people who sought God and truth by faith. 
the Reformation foundly affected the views of politics and law. Prior to this, the church governed all politics, controlling emperors and kings and the law of lands. There was no distinction between church and state, much less any separation. It's all one big, massive hierarchy. Today, what we see in the U.S., that the church is not the state and the state is not the church, wasn't seen then. In the realm of science, it's generally agreed by historians that there was there never would have been modern science were it not for the Reformation. All scientific investigation and endeavor prior to that had been controlled by the church. Only through ignorance of history do modern scientists believe that Protestants oppose true science. In fact, it's really just the opposite. As believers want to seek God's truth wherever it leads them, we enjoy science. The same story with education and languages, and every other aspect of society. But further than that, the Reformation exposed and concluded the right and the obligation of individuals to express their conscience and the right to personally follow the dictates of that individual conscience. This is kind of an unusual thought. People did what the masses did. An individual conscience that have to follow This is a a new thought. Many people today who frequently talk about liberty don't realize that they owe liberty of conscience to the reformers, how they restored that. But it raises another point. While true believers give thanks to God for the Reformation, others choose to mourn this radical change. And this next section is, I didn't copy it exactly, but it's it's inspired by Sinclair Ferguson who, who did the research on this. After the Reformation fires were ignited, the Roman Catholic Church began a counter-Reformation movement. Pope Clement VIII appointed Cardinal Robert Bellarmine, he lived from 1542 to 1621, as his personal theologian and as a leader for the counter-Reformation. This cardinal also taught at the Roman College. One time for a class he was teaching, he tested his students with this question. He wrote out this sentence and and left a blank. You're supposed to fill in the blank. The greatest of all Protestant heresies is blank. Complete and explain. That was the test. What do you think? (laughs) How would you answer? What, What topic would he consider the greatest of all heresies? Perhaps justification by faith, perhaps scripture alone, or one of the other Reformation watchwords. All of these answers make logical sense, but none of them were Bellarmine's choice. I'll give you a hint by telling you a story that recently happened. In Crosswave, we have a third-year Crosswave teenager. She's passionate, articulate, she's faithful. She's our prayer leader this year. She's ministered in Uganda on mission trips, and she's asked me personally how she could better share her faith with her friends. Last Saturday night, we had a a simple audience of one performance with the team and some parents and the pastor of the host church who has been at the church for six weeks. He's brand new. He preached a clear sermon about salvation. Immediately, I mean immediately, we see God working. And this girl, along with many others who rised for prayer for many wonderful reasons, comes up to see Mary for counsel and encouragement. She shares 
that she's heard such great, what great experiences other people have had when they get saved that she hasn't had, that maybe she's not saved. You get the problem? We see her as a faithful witness of God. She says, well, I haven't had the experience that they had when they got saved, so maybe I'm not saved. So Mary sees that she needs assurance, and she opens the scriptures and points out to her all that God has promised, and she rejoices. So what answer did Bellarmine expect on this quiz? Simply this. The greatest of all Protestant heresies is assurance. 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 I've heard it been. I've heard it, it called this. Assurance des- uh, destroys the damnable doctrine of doubt that was rampant, prevalent. Assurance lets you lie your head on the pillow at night, knowing that you're at peace with God, and you have no fear. Assurance means there's no doubt or worry accompanying every decision and every action that you take. Assurance. Confidence in a promise. Confidence in a pledge or a guarantee. Certainty. Surety. These words were not spoken very much in these, in these ages. 14, 1500s. A moment's thinking explains why. If a justification is not by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, if faith needs to be completed by works, if Christ's once and for all work somehow must be helped along, if his grace is not free and sovereign, then there is always something more to be done. There is always something more to be added so that you can be sure you're justified. This is exactly the issue that Bellarmine fears. For this is what keeps the priests employed. Think about it. This is what keeps the church receiving the offerings and the gifts. If final justification depends on some more work we need to do, then it's never possible to enjoy salvation, the assurance of salvation. If final justification is contingent and uncertain, then it is also unsure for anyone to know they are saved. But if Christ has done everything, if justification is by grace without our works and is received by faith's empty hands, then assurance, even full assurance, is possible for every believer. The church taught it was presuming pride of heart to have confidence in salvation. That's what caused Joan of Arc to be killed. She was certain of salvation. And they saw that as the most intense pride of heart. We're we're talking about something that's desperately wrong that God corrected. Free grace was seen as dangerous. But the reformers rejoiced when they read Hebrews. Hebrews 10, 19 to 23. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with true 
with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. When they read Hebrews, they saw that Christ has once and for all become the sacrifice for all of our sins, and he was raised and vindicated by the power of an indestructible life as our great high priest. By faith in Jesus, we are as righteous before the throne of God as Jesus is righteous, because we have been imputed his righteousness. Because we are justified in his righteousness, his justification alone is ours. And we can no more lose this justification than if Jesus can fall from heaven. In fact, verse 14 of chapter 10 sets this up by saying, By one offering, he has perfected for all time those who come to God by him. The reason we stand before God in full assurance is because we now experience our hearts sprinkled clean from an equal conscience and bodies washed pure with pure water. Having assurance does not lead to a life of moral and spiritual indifference because the work of Jesus empowers, empowered by the fuel assurance of faith it produces, provides believers with God's energy to do everything he commands, to live for his glory. Even more, this full assurance is rooted in the truth that God himself has done all this for us. God has done it for us. It's not something we've accomplished on our own. This also helps us see what assurance is not. If you ever trust that you have done enough to gain faith and to earn the works to guarantee your admittance into into heaven, then probably you haven't. If your trust is in what you have done, then you can see that it's a sign that you don't have assurance. Because you might not have done enough. The more I think that I have done enough to be saved, the less likely I have been saved. Instead, the more I trust by faith in the work of Christ, the more assurance I have that he has secured salvation for me. Assurance is not about having experience. Assurance is all about God's trustworthy. Is God trustworthy? (laughs) Are his promises true? Have you believed them? Do you receive them? Do you want to live your life for his glory? You know, these are are the ways that God shows us and gives us assurance. I love it when God turns man's thinking upside down. And that's what he's done here. He's turned it completely upside down. Assurance is not how we get saved. Assurance is rejoicing in the absolute certainty of our salvation. It really is a, a, uh, a big part of our faith. And, and recently we've seen parts of, of people who, who say they're Christian begin to really worry and doubt whether they have assurance of salvation. And really, it means they don't trust the sufficiency of Christ. They don't trust what he promised him. So it's really not an assurance problem, it's really a faith issue, right? Here are some of the... Um, the, the scriptures that that that, that the Bible gives us uh, related to assurance. Jesus promises assurance to those who believe in Him. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. 
No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. John 10, 28-29. He says, I give them eternal life. So Jesus promises assurance to those who believe in him. The second one is from Romans 10, 17. So faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. In John 20, 31. These have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Assurance comes from hearing the word of God. And you can see you can see why people didn't have much assurance 500 years ago. They didn't hear the word of God. They didn't they didn't they didn't really know about a Christ to believe in. They they saw a Christ on a cross. They heard about uh, Mary, his mother, and they heard about how they could pay indulgences to get their friends out of purgatory. The third one, assurance rests on the sufficiency of the great high priest. Hebrews 10, 21, 22. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. You know, we, we have a great high priest and he is over the house of God. He is ours and we are his. We can draw close to him because of what he's done and we have assurance of our faith. Hebrews six eleven says, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. We can say assurance is God's will for us. We desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope. There there is a false assurance. There is a false assurance. Uh, A a word-only assurance. A lack of, of faith and belief. Um. But typically the false assurance flips the focus off of Christ onto me and about what I've done, you see. It's like how much faith does it take across to, does it take to walk across a bridge? Well, really you can have very weak faith and walk across a bridge because you trust the designers and the builders of the bridge. You trust that it's been maintained. You can see the strength of the bridge. You can have a lot of faith and hop across the bridge, but you could walk across the bridge with, and a similar sort of way with salvation. You see the strength of the bridge of Jesus Christ. You hear you hear about the the ones who who, who how God crafted uh, salvation for us and the perfect sacrifice given for us. So a, a, a false assurance really is flipping the flipping the the focus back on ourselves rather than on Christ. If you get to heaven's gate and they say, why should I let you into my heaven? You say, I'm not worthy of heaven, but I have one who, who said he would take me in. It's all about Christ. Not only that, but the Spirit attests to our assurance in 1 John 5, 10 and 11. Or, I'm sorry, Romans 8, 20, 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And then in 1 John 5, 10 and 11, the one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. I I wonder if the Cardinal had read these verses. I tend to think he hadn't. In some way he hadn't read them. Because these are really clear, aren't they? They're really clear. The last one I'm going to cover here is assurance stands on the strength of God's character. Romans 8.32 
He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? You know, if, if God was going to give up his son, God wouldn't be capricious enough to deny <coughs> salvation for those who believe in that very same son. I mean, this is, this is God's character. God's purposes and plans are at stake here. So I want you to consider here for a moment the sweetness of assurance. When was the last time you laid your head down on the pillow with fear about your eternal security? When, you know, when have you made decisions based on doubt rather than faith? And think how sweet assurance is. You know, how sweet it is. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? You know, this answers objectively our deepest doubts and fears. Why would we have any more fear? This is what God has done. It gives you an objective answer. Jesus the father gave his son for sacrifice for us and he promised us salvation it gives us proof of god's grace and that he did not spare his own son and to accomplish it i mean god didn't just whip out a ton of gold for you to buy you back he didn't just create the heavens and the earth to buy you back he gave his precious son for you to win you back So we have an objective answer, a proof of an answer, and it confers the certainty of pardon guilt. You know, when Jesus rose from the dead, it was pretty certain that that gift, that sacrifice, had been accepted as a payment for us. You know, Jesus was vindicated. His life was vindicated. And he rose to heaven where he still sits and rules and prays for each one of us. Jesus is alive today, and our faith is dependent upon that. If God would give Christ for us, he will give us all things, including assurance of faith for salvation. This is the reason the Reformation went viral in Europe. I mean, all this faith and grace, those are all, those are the teachings, those are the how-tos. Assurance is the I'm free. <laughs> Assurance is I can rejoice in this now. And that's why in a matter of a of, uh, hundred years, completely changed. You know, aided by people translating the scriptures in their own languages, aided by the getting that word out into people's hands, aided by people teaching others how to read, aided by all of these other ways... Um, that the gospel be set free to accomplish what only the gospel can accomplish. We have a lot to be thankful for. We can read these scriptures and we can, we can in our own language, we can understand what the words mean, what, this, what, he, what the authors are saying to us. The Spirit comes and brings it to life within us. And then we can rejoice in it. I, was, I mentioned this the other day. We were in Peru. And we went to this, uh, to the catacombs, 
And, you know, people thought that if they were buried under the church, that they would get some extra credit and not have to stay in purgatory so long. And they told us that 25 million people were buried in the catacombs under this one building. And you, you just walk through it and you just see hopelessness and helplessness. I, maybe I was making all that up, but it, it felt pretty strong to me. Um, the news of the gospel freed during the time of the Reformation shattered the chains that held people captive to fear and doubt. That's a pretty powerful message. And it will do the same thing today. The gospel will do the same thing today to people captured in fear and doubt. God's truth gives us peace and freedom. Our confidence rests in Jesus, not in ourselves. Is assurance... Like the cardinal thought, the greatest of all heresies? What do you think? Is this the way of God? Assurance? Is that the true way of God? Or is that a prideful heart? You know, we, we need to have a conviction in our heart about whether or not we can be assured. This is, this is God's intent for us. Of course, Jesus promised it. The Spirit attested to it. The Word of God says it's based on God's character that we have it. This is part and parcel parcel of the gospel. We need to have assurance to to escape from fear and doubt. I know a lot of teenagers who struggle with this. And they they think they've done one thing wrong and God doesn't love them anymore. They think that this one bad thing happened and and they're all set free, I mean, set loose on the ocean, just floating around. They need assurance is what they need. This is not the greatest heresy. This is just the opposite. This is the sweetness of God's grace. This is the promise of God that filled the reformers. It gave them energy to do what they did. In so many nations, over so many, over several centuries, this was going on. And it still goes on in more and more places. This filled their hearts with joy and it can fill our hearts with joy too. And I pray that it will. <laughs> Somebody should bow your heads. I want to give you some things to, to pray over. Uh, and then, Jason, do you have another song? You know, so often we think, Lord, only about our own situations, our own time. Maybe we think about when we were younger or our childhood. Rarely do we think about our parents' childhood or but Lord, to go back centuries and to understand the situation. And Lord, it was all in your timing to change the course of nations and to do it through men and women given to the gospel. Lord, I pray that we would appreciate this, the heritage that we have. Lord, it, we could study the other continents of the world and try to see, Lord, what was happening in those places in the, in the 1500s. And Lord, there's all sorts of theories and ideas. But Lord, we, we hearken back to what you did to powerfully change the course of history and to powerfully change the church. And Lord, to powerfully change our heart attitude 
toward this idea of fear and doubt versus assurance of faith. Lord, we thank you for displaying the glory of the gospel and assurance, and we rejoice. And Lord, I pray that today, that if any one of us here today does not rejoice in assurance, Lord, that you would you would come convince our souls. That we would we would find someone to talk through the scriptures and let's see what the word of God says. Because it's not based on our experience. Lord, it's not based on our working hard. It's based on your promises being fulfilled towards us. And you are worthy, Father. And Lord, we also pray for a continual reforming in the church and in the world. Well, we ask we ask that the Reformation not end, but we pray, Lord, that it not just change for the sake of change or to accommodate sin, Lord, but only to remain true to Your Word and become a clearer example of of the Bride of Christ being loved by the Bride by the Groom and His desire and, and plan and purpose being fulfilled in her in every in every place. We pray that the heart of the church would would beat with a a love for God. With all of her heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Lord, a love for her neighbor. Lord, we've seen so many things that really, um, they ought not be, Lord. They ought not be. Lord, we pray for a reformation of your church to continue. And we pray, Lord, that the reformation of the church might flow into uh, the world. Lord, I'll, I'll mention the hashtag me too because it's really gripped my heart as to how men could be so domineering over so many women only seeking to please themselves, Lord. Lord, I don't think that was started by a Christian, but Lord, it, it will expose light. That will be the light of the gospel with people when they realize that you are the only solution to the heart of men and the only healing for the heart of the women. Lord, I pray that the Reformation would continue even in areas like this. Lord, may may you be glorified in, in each church. Lord, we ask that the gospel go forth with power in every nation, in every leader, in every Congress, in every parliament, in every judgeship, Lord, in every place where people make laws, enforce laws, or carry out intents and purposes of their laws. And even when there's no law, Lord, there's only a ruler. Somehow, Father, we pray that the the Reformation would continue in their hearts. So Lord, we thank you for these men and women that preceded us. How so many of them gave their lives, Lord, being burned at the stake, being beheaded. Lord, even their bones being dug up and burned and then the ashes poured into the rivers. Because, Lord, they didn't do it just for fun, Lord. They did it because you had given them a hope. A hope that withstands every test and trial. And Lord, I pray that you would give us that same hope that withstands every test and trial. Thank you, God. Lord, we give you all the praise. And Lord, when 
Tuesday comes and it's Reformation Day, I, I pray that we would we would just truly give you thanks. We would give you thanks, Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord God. Blessed be His truth. Blessed be the gospel. Lord, we thank you for faith that it by alone we 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 are saved. Lord, we thank you for grace that is through your grace, not our works, not our earning, Lord, by the grace of Jesus. And Lord, we thank you for Jesus. It's just in him alone, Lord. There is no other Savior. There's no other way. Lord, all this is revealed to us in Scripture alone. There's no tradition, no hierarchy. It's, tradition, it's, it's, it's the Scriptures that teach us this. And Lord, why would you do all this for us except for your glory alone? Thank you, Jesus. We pray this together in Jesus' name.